Hello and welcome back. It's episode 90 of Campbell Conversations with your host, Colin Campbell. Today's conversation, we are joined by Mike Stevenson, the founder of Thinktastic. Mike's story is one that we can all learn from. After going from being spat on and abused in the lowest of places, Mike went on to become lauded in the highest of places in the business world. I ask about how Mike turned his life around from this lowest of points to found a multi-million pound business. It's a truly inspiring conversation and I think there's a lot that we can all learn from Mike. Having worked with clients such as the NHS, Standard Life and Sky, we learn the commonly implemented themes and areas that Mike supports businesses with when it comes to improving their arrangements. As an accomplished public speaker, expect to learn how Mike improved his own speaking ability and also how he improved his storytelling ability, something that many of us can action in our day-to-day lives or if we're creating on social media. During these pandemic-influenced times when people seem more reserved than ever, we also find out about Mike's five-a-day habit that fuels him for a positive outcome. Today's podcast is supported and brought to you by Factory Weights. Factory Weights enable you to get high-quality gym and fitness equipment at an affordable price with next-day delivery, just £3. Factory Weights are heavy on quality but light on price to allow you to stock up on a range of equipment from dumbbells, kettlebells, barbells, plates, even through to resistance bands, liquid chalk and mats so that you can get equipment to train from home or if you're setting up in a small garage gym or if you're a PT studio, the guys at Factory Weights cater for it all. You can check out the website, which will be linked in the show notes, which is factoryweights.co.uk. And to save on the already competitive prices, you can use call 10 for a further 10% off. I cannot wait to hear what you guys think of this conversation with Mike. I loved listening to him. He's got so many interesting stories and I know you will get a lot of value from it. If you are new here, please Navigate that finger on your podcast app to the subscribe button and hit it for me or follow whatever it says and make sure that you're following the podcast and you don't miss any of the weekly uploads every single Sunday. But all I can say is strap in for this one and I look forward to hearing what you all think. Let's go. Hello and welcome back to Canberra Conversations. Today's conversation, I'm lucky to be joined by Mike Stevenson. Mike, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. It's great to have you. And I was saying before we hit record that I'd heard you speak probably coming up for two and a half years ago when we were allowed to do these things, Mike, and go to events and have you up the front inspiring us all. Heaven. And uh, let's, uh, let's, let's speed back to that as far as possible. But you're somebody that's got an incredibly interesting background Mike and my question for you would be how did you go from homeless to fearless? Um, Well it wasn't a planned route. Um, If I just tell you very briefly I I had a really bad time at school. I could not focus. I probably had uh, um, attention deficit disorder but I wouldn't know that then because I hadn't been it wasn't an available condition at that stage. So I, I hated it and I was chucked out at the age of 15 at the same time my parents were, were were splitting up and it was it was just a horrible time. So I I escaped down to London. And um, to cut a long story short, I got a job um, and everything was going swimmingly well, but um, I was sacked for the fact that customers could not understand my Scottish accent. So I went back to my B and B and I explained to the landlady, she said, Well, 
if you haven't got a job, you haven't got a place to stay. So she, she effectively asked me to leave and take my meagre belongings with me. So I ended up sleeping out. Now, um, sleeping out was tough, but you meet incredible people. Um, you meet people who've got enormous talents, enormous skills, um, enormous personalities, you get humour, you get storytelling. So that period was a really good learning journey. But at the same time, I got you know beaten up a few times, kicked in the ribs when I was asleep. I got thrown downstairs, I had a gun pulled on me, and I got threatened by a knife, woken up to a knife at my throat. So I learned a lot about myself. And uh, I suppose the fearlessness, fearlessness comes from, um, you know, finding uh, a route out of it, which was to go to Dublin. I met some Irish people and I picked up the guitar. Now I could play the guitar and I could sing. So I busked at the top of Grafton Street in Dublin. Now, that was a, a real awakening because, you know, I found I could entertain an audience and people would gather around. And I became friends with Thin Lizzy or Phil Linnett and Brian Downey of Thin Lizzy, who had just formed then. So, you know, I discovered something about myself that I didn't realise, and that was I was a performer. So I suppose I, and then I went back to London, you know, eventually, and I worked in building sites, and um, I worked in all manner of manual labour jobs. So I developed a physicality as well as a personality. And I really thought I could conquer the world. And um, that comes from being confident in your communication with people. That is so important because you can talk your way out of any situation, well, almost any situation. And when you know that you can entertain people um, and hold their attention and focus, then it's a huge, huge leap. So that's where I went, I think, from being you know, timorous um, and homeless, somebody who was bullied at school, to being utterly fearless. Yeah, and it, it's an incredible story, Mike. And of course, part of the, the fearlessness is your ability to communicate. And as you've done there, held me in conversation with a really interesting story. But there's people that have interesting stories that can't communicate it the way that you do. And I've seen you share recently, you were talking about some of the talented people that you met during your time when you were homeless in London and almost that would come as a surprise to many people like myself who maybe haven't had as many interactions with that with with that demographic of people other than maybe giving a pound to the guy outside the outside the the the, the car park and in Buchanan Street or something like that which it, it, it's nothing towards helping the cause but you, you you speak to somebody briefly and that's it whereas you lived that lifestyle and you met these people and you explored their stories what were yeah. some of the experiences that maybe shaped you during that? I mean, I know you've mentioned there about muggings and beatings and really unpleasant yeah. things, but what else shaped you during that time? Well, um, the, the, I remember a girl, she was 16, and she came from the home counties. and She was a, she was a young lassie, very, very slight, and she was sleeping out. And I, I was very protective towards her. And her story was this, that she had failed her exams. And her parents had demanded that she apologise to the, the whole family for letting the family name down, or else they would not feed her until she did that. It was extraordinary. So here was someone who had failed her exams. Her parents had effectively, um, you know, rejected her until she apologised. 
And yet she had a brilliant singing voice and she could make up songs as well. I met a guy who, I think I wrote this in, in the article, um, who was able to make things out of anything he found. He used to construct these models of London buildings using anything he found you know, during the night and he would construct these things during the day. So you meet talents, so you realize that people have got qualities. So that, that was really important for me to recognize that you cannot judge anyone. But I think th the other thing that shaped me was, um, and this is a, a story I tell, and it's, it's, it's an extraordinary story. I was in Piccadilly Circus one night and one of the prized places to stay was the toilet. There were a, a row of toilets um, beside Piccadilly Underground. They were open all night. And I tried night after night and every night it was, uh, it was occupied. And one night I turned up and I saw this door ajar. So I, I quickly grabbed it. So I'm sitting down in the toilet, which is a luxurious, you know, it was like the Ritz when you were sleeping out in December. And the, there was a knock on the door. And this voice spoke and received pronunciation, very posh. He said, excuse me, do you mind if I um, share your room for tonight? So I let him in. And he was, a, he was like the, the, the picture vagrant, you know? And, uh, and I found out his story. He'd been very wealthy. He'd come from Stanmore in Middlesex. And he, he described himself as having worked so hard that he overcompensated his wife and little girl by always buying them gifts. And one day, it was his wife, wife's birthday and he, he, he knocked on the door and he said, come on, I want to show you something, darling, to his wife. And uh, she came out and there was a red sports car. And he says, this is for you. So he said, go out and take, the, take my daughter, I can't remember her name, for a spin. So they left, he saw them driving down the drive. That was the last time he saw them because they hit a tree and they were both killed. And he threw everything away. He said, the most important thing for me, I have lost and nothing else matters. So he's been out on the road for seven years by the time I met him. And he said to me, you know, whatever you do, realize what matters to you and never lose sight of that because greed is the enemy of humanity because I accumulated lots of money, but then I realized that money stood for absolutely nothing. It was my family that I loved, and that was a defining moment. The other one that shaped me was uh, one day it was picked up by a charity in, in Piccadilly Circus, and I was taken to this hostel, and they said, look, we'll put you up for tonight, and in the morning, we'll find you accommodation. And I thought, yes. So I arrived at this place, it was in Peckham, and I was shown into this tiled room, and the first words that were spoken to me were take your clothes off, which I did. The next thing I knew was a, a hose pointing at me. And suddenly this you know, spray was unleashed. And I felt that size because, you know, I, I realized then that what I was looking for was not accommodation, first and foremost. It was to feel valued, to feel significant. Yes. And I escaped back into the streets because at least I had some dignity there. So those are really defining moments for me because you know, every day we have interactions or we hope we do. And of course, the last year and a half, um, you know, I've had far fewer, far fewer interactions. But 
you know, each one of them offers an opportunity to lift someone's spirits or sink their spirits. And you think it's not just about words, but it's also about your body language, your eye contact, all of these things. So I learned an important lesson in communication then. Yeah, these lessons in communication with people from so many different backgrounds as well, Mike, is something that I find so interesting whenever I listen to you and whenever I read your content, because you are somebody that goes in with a very open mind to understand what's what's this person gone through, what's their story, what's their background. And of course, you've lived a life that's maybe radically different from most people who are tuned in via a pair of AirPods to a, to, 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 to a podcast, yeah. trying, to, trying, to, yeah. trying, to, trying to improve themselves from a self-development perspective. But there's so much to learn from the exposures that you've had, but also some of the approaches that you take where you are so willing to talk to and listen to and take on board what is being told towards you. And that's just a handful of the experiences that you've named there, particularly in probably what you would call your formative years where you were being shaped and very much changed from this young man who almost forced out of home at 15 all the way through to to, to the man you are today but I'd be very keen to know what's kind of happened along the way from a, a business and a career perspective because you said you went to Dublin you then were back in London doing some manual labor but there's been some significant milestones between yeah, then and yeah. now that I'd be loved to dive into. Okay well I think the milestones uh, were that in 1972 someone told me about this college outside Edinburgh called New Battle Abbey College and it was a place where people who'd failed first time around in education, could get a grant to go and study for a year, a minimum of a year. And I applied and I was living in London at the time and and the the rector actually came to visit me in London and interview me there. And, and, And I was, you know, gobsmacked by that. But he said, I love your story and we'd love to welcome you. So I, I moved up to Edinburgh in this beautiful old um, building. It was a, used to be a Cistercian monastery um, near Dalkeith. And it was my place of study for a year. And I realised then that I wasn't stupid. That's the first thing, that I could speak, that I could read, that I could love poetry, I could love literature, I could understand history. I studied government and politics and English literature. Uh, which, bearing in mind, um, you know, where I'd come from was quite a leap. But government and politics also fascinated me because when you learn that the best talents and the best people you've met are the ones with the least at their disposal, you know, in terms of of money, then you realise that, you know, politics is important. It's It's not a party thing. It's about how we live our lives and it's about how we value people and now the planet, you know? And I put up a wee uh, post yesterday showing a tiny baby, you know, and it was, it was really saying that if this baby could, they would say, you know, please don't let me down, you know? I've got a life to live and, you know, to whom I'm born and where I was born should not matter in the scheme of things. You know, I've got talents and all the rest of it. So that was a milestone. Then I, I got a job as a community worker in, in Edinburgh, in Leith. And of course, then I learned, you know, that people um, living on the margins are extraordinary, but they need to be inspired, motivated, given opportunities. So we formed a housing association, which meant that effectively the community would 
own the homes, own the houses. We bought out landlords who were, you know, not not doing the right thing. And that taught me that, you know, you can make change, but you need people to make change and people need to be persuaded and they need to be given the confidence. And I found that very easy to do given my background. So I think it might have been harder for someone, you know, who had come straight from university um, and I'd gone to this community and said, look, I've got ideas um, because I listened to them. And I think, you know, listening is the most elusive of all the communication skills, because if you listen, then you can use words that connect with that person. Yeah, we, we but have unless you understand right. them, then you can't really communicate. Um, so that was a, a turning point. And then, of course, um, I, I was one of the founder members of what became the Wise Group in Glasgow um, in 1984. And we were taking people who'd been, you know, long-term unemployed, giving them a job, giving them training, giving them proper wage and doing vital things around the city. And then you see that, you know, people who sometimes talk the most are the least confident. And it's about, you know, giving them the belief that they've got something to offer, that they're of value. And I found that quite easy to do because if I tell a wee bit about my story, people listen. You know, they say, this is not bullshit. This is someone who actually speaks to us because he understands us. It's not as if I came from a very poor background, I didn't, but I'd been down there and I'd, you know, worked at the very lowest ebb in all sorts of industries. I'd been, you know, suffocated uh, by awful leadership because you see leadership at its worst. You know, you're, you're working in you know, all kinds of environments and you're treated like a unit of production, disposable. And that's wrong. You know, we need to change leadership now so that people are empowered to, to, to drive their workplace forward, you know, to feel that they've got a stake in it, that their ideas matter. Because ideas have no hierarchy. The credibility yeah, you've got from your experience, Mike, is, is massive. So the credibility you've got to relate to people who are in those struggling situations. So as a community worker, you couldn't think of anyone better to go in and share experience. I mean, of course, there's the person that's maybe done the degree in social care or support that has read the textbooks. But by the time you'd educated yourself and also had that experience, it was that deadly combination of having had like time under tension and skin in the game or whatever phrase we want to throw around alongside the intellectual understanding of how to support. And of course, these brilliant people skills of yours in terms of two ears and one mouth for a reason as, a, as, a, as, as many parents have told children over the years. I'll tell you a funny story, because when I went for the interview, I was the outlier, you know, and uh, so I'm sitting there and he's looking at my um, inked CV and he says, look, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest here, you've had, you know, 23 jobs, you've got the sack from, I think, four of them, I said, actually, it was five of them. Um, and there's nothing here that says you've got, you know, this kind of skills that we're looking for or the stability. And he said, so why would I employ you? He says, well, you know, I've learned to communicate with people at all levels. I've survived the streets of London. I've entertained pedestrian, you know, audiences in Dublin. I've learned to, you know, work with wood, with steel. Um, I've learned to lay bricks, plaster walls. Um, and, but most of all, I've learned to, you know, support 
people sometimes in the very edge of existence to, to you know, face up to a future that can be better. And I got the job. So it is this skills, knowledge, experience versus qualification. And I was never going to get anywhere with my qualification, my educational background, but that, that's what swung it. And, you know, that's interesting, isn't it? I think it's very interesting, particularly in this day and age where probably since 1997, Tony Blair, we had this big focus on 50% of students that leave high school must go into further education, whether that's college or, or university. And this almost dismissal of even apprenticeships or, or, or other ways in, in, into business. And, and I was forced down that university route where you were quite good at English and history and modern studies, Colin, you need to go and study at university. And that was all well and good. But really what I learned during that time was critical thought and the ability to take large amounts of information and filter it down, whether that was in politics or history was, a, was, was another matter. So it's very, very interesting when I hear people speak nowadays who maybe weren't as institutionalized as some of the younger generation coming through to, to go down that path. Well, I mean, you look, the, the, the world has changed um, so much. And when we look into the future, you know, we're not going to have a single career. That's something that belongs in the past. It was interesting when I was in Denmark in the late 1980s, uh, they don't have a single career. They've not thought about that for ages, you know, so you might be a joiner, then become a teacher and then become, you know, someone in the insurance industry. So this this notion of channeling people, um, particularly because I failed it. I mean, I was you know, an abject failure at school. Um, it's, it's always puzzled me. And it's and it's true, you know, that talents and skills come in many different forms. And we need this diversity of talents in, in the world. And we cannot put a hierarchy on them. You know, I always think, um, you know, there's Greta Thunberg. Um, she's got Asperger's. And she has been mocked by some people, particularly, you know, presidents and, and leaders of opposition parties uh, here. Um, I'm talking about UKIP. Uh, yet, you know, she has had more influence on young people around the world. And, you know, her alongside David Attenborough, who's 98, you know, that shows you that, you know, people that will change the world, you can't be educated to change the world. You know, there is nothing that says, right, you're going to be a, a global change maker. Here is the course. You can't do that. And I, I learned extraordinary things doing physical work. Um, then I went into education. Then I went into business. So there is no, you know, single track that people can take. But we have to value the fact that people come from all quarters. And the one quality I think, oh, no, I'll give you three qualities I think that every workplace will need creativity you know we have to give people the confidence to know that they can look at something as a challenge and find different ways to approach it and that requires you know a certain degree of confidence also requires a bit of lateral thinking um, then there is the ability to adapt and adaptability means that you have to be able to you know um, move in different directions and change course and maybe change levels and not be intimidated by that. And the third one is the ability to communicate. Whatever you do, you know, whatever line we're in, 
and by the way, I've worked in you know steelworks where you were dependent on each other, you know, to to keep safe. So you were dealing with you know huge chunks of metal and you know um, red hot. So one mistake could you know make someone else's life very very difficult so you communicate in all jobs in all roles and you know we do need to to spend more time i think at school um at university because being at university does not teach you to write because i've employed people who you know be brought up with the, the the essay writing um in university which is not proper communication because it's to please lecturers and it's to please the conventional. I mean, only 10 people read the average academic paper. Um, and it infuriates me because there's so much brilliant information in universities. And yet, you know, you have to dig, dig, dig and then interpret and analyze um, before you can extract it. So communication is, is important. And university lecturers and academics are possibly amongst the worst communicators globally well no one ever sees their stuff and some make it into television you know they're the ones that can communicate but you know brian cox is a brilliant communicator he's an academic but it's because he can communicate because he was in d ream wasn't he? he was in the band yes i remember yeah so so he had a, a kind of a slightly more creative approach to his subject and of course he enthralls people by talking about a subject which um, he brings to life. He brings it, he, 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 you know, he evokes something in people. And, you know, this, is, this ability is so important. And I've got it without being an expert in anything. Yeah. I suppose I mean, I'm an expert in communication. I was about to say, I certainly think so. And when you speak about uh, the style of writing that we do for university in particular, it needs to be completely contrasted when we communicate on social media, which is where the vast majority of people now invest their attention and spend yeah, their time. Yeah, so yeah. if you look at a LinkedIn post, it's short, sharp sentences to keep you engaged. It's bullet points, it's numbers, it's images to support that rather than screeds and screeds of text in large Absolutely. paragraphs with references. Yeah. And yeah. it's undoubtedly very, very different. And I think if anything, there should be more taught around how to maintain somebody's attention during a discussion rather than anything Absolutely. else. And that's certainly something that you do, Mike. Yeah. I was just interestingly, I, I, I do teach public speaking, um, but I actually teach not how to speak in public, but how to influence uh, people, how to maintain their attention. And of course, storytelling comes into it. But um, I always talk of, there was a, weekly programme, World in Action, it was a Granada TV programme. And Granada would take on these big issues and it would present it in a way that, you know, within 25 minutes, they had told a story. They'd involve the people that affected. They involved the people that affected it. And, you know, to be able to do that in 25 minutes <clears throat> by starting off with someone speaking who has been, you know, subject at the sharp end of this issue. It grabs you in. I suppose the news is a bit like that. You know, you get the headlines at the beginning, then you get the story, then you get the summary. But it is important that we learn that. And, uh, you know, we need now, you know, to 
my purpose is 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 to give people the the skills, the belief, the the confidence to you know do all the things that are needed in the world. And boy, we're at a kind of critical point now, where any argument that we need to change the way we do things is well, no one's going to argue with that now, apart from people who are kind of sitting on a a pile of money who, you know, might lose some of it in, in this new world. So it's important. Of course. And you mentioned there about helping people and organizations change. That's done through Thinktastic. So for the listeners, bring them up to speed about what that is, but also what drove you to, to start that was what was the kind of pushing factor? Well, I had a, a, a design agency. I started with a partner and then I bought him out after seven years or something, I can't remember. And, you know, when the, the the banking crisis came along, it hit us really badly because uh, we did a lot of contract magazines. It wasn't the main, it wasn't my main thrill, but we did Standard Life, uh, Scottish and Sunday Energy, NHS, I mean, some, some of the biggest brand names um, did work for M&S um, and that got hit before anything else. Because all these companies suddenly had to draw back on their budget spent on fripperies, fripperies. And of course, you know, communication, internal communication is not a frippery, but they had to be seen to be doing something. So that left me bereft. I'd lost a lot of money. I tried to keep the company going for as long as possible. And one of the things that always struck me working with clients and something I'd done differently um, was when you were asked to pitch for, say, a 76-page annual report, I would say, why make a 76-page annual report? Because that's what we've always done. And I would say, well, you know, I could do something that more people will read, that will make a greater impact, that will communicate your messages with far more clarity and far more immediacy, would you accept if I came up with a pitch for that? And they says, well, you can try it. And of course, um, this is for a local authority. So from producing, you know, something like 2,076 page annual reports, we produced enough to distribute to every household in this area, right? So it was about, you know, not just answering the brief, but saying to an organization, look, Let's change your language. Let's get people inside this organization, you know, understanding the purpose and getting bought into that. Let's get them thinking creatively about how they could do things differently. So that's where Thinktastic came from. And of course, then I, I ended up speaking more and more and more because in a sense, that was the most valuable product. If you could speak to, you know, 2000 people in a room or in a theater and you can, you say, look, this is what being at work is about. It's not about having a job description. It's about, you know, bringing your personality. It's about, you know, you know, using language that people understand. So if you work in, you know, a particular um, organization which has got its own language and, you know, you just have to look at the public sector to see how badly that can go wrong because we've got this policy environment, but, the language is all sustainability, inclusiveness, inclusion. And, you know, most people don't speak like that. They don't talk about inclusion. They say, you know, 
I'm the same as anyone else. Um, we're all Jock Tamsin's bairns, as Robert Burns gave us this line years ago. Why not use that? You know, so it's about changing the way that organisations, you know, think and the way that people within those organisations can make a massive contribution to growing the organisation, making it more successful, making it more impactful. And, you know, above all, you know, communicating in a way that their customers and the people inside the organisation understand. Absolutely. And when you talk there about communicating better, one of the key themes that jumps out at me there is understandable language alongside not necessarily a shortening, but a more concise, punchy nature to information. Because if you're going to release this huge report, like you say, they were only printing enough copies for the, the small amount of demand, whereas... For a local authority, everyone really should be reading yes. the summary of what's happening. Exactly. In, in- exactly. So, I mean, that that's they had a, a kind of obligation to um, report on their performance. So you had these horrible tables that were crammed into a newspaper advert. You know, no one looked at that. I mean, or maybe maybe some strange people poured over it with a magnifying glass to see how they performed against other local authorities. But by and large, it was just an obligation to print it, right? And I said, why not make that your annual report? Popularise it, you know, put graphics in there and make it understandable. Put a few human stories and get it into everyone's home. Absolutely. Given some, so, of, the, given some of the businesses you've worked with, we named um, Standard Life. I know you've done work with the NHS, Sky, Scottish Government. What are some of the common themes that you implement beyond improvement of like display of information? Well, I, I think um, <clears throat> the, the first thing is, you know, that you, you, you've you got to get a commitment from a CEO that they're part of it. Because I've had people come to me and say, look, I'd like you to, you know, I'd like you to do something with my people because they're a bit lazy sometimes and, you know, and there's one or two troublemakers. And I say, only if you come. And the ones that are pointed out to me as troublemakers are usually the most productive. The ones that have got something to say because they care about what they do. The only reason they are people who are disruptive in the workplace is because they actually care about what they do. So this idea that they are the, the, the outliers, the people that should, you know, if we can find a way of getting rid of them, we will. They are the ones that actually could be the most productive so and the most helpful and and actually you've got leadership qualities so um it's about you know promoting leadership it's about what is leadership about it's about empowering everyone here to go and you know think about how they could do better and more it's about establishing what your purpose is you know i've been i've been in uh, you know, lots of situations where, when I started the Steelworks, by the way, I said to the foreman, what are we actually making here? He says, you don't need to know that. Right? That, that speaks so much. I started on a building site in Ellis Court, and it was a Welsh foreman. He put his arm around me and he says, Michael, welcome. And he showed me the plans and he says, this is the palace you're building. Come in here every day. Remind yourself the palace you're building. That's what I'm talking about. The two situations were entirely different. One, I was doing a job to get paid at the end of the week. The other, I was doing a job because I believed in what I was doing and I felt part of this purpose. So sometimes, you know, 
CEOs and organizations are not very good at spelling out their purpose. So people start a job and they're briefed in by a, you know, a supervisor, a manager, HR department, and at no point um, has anyone said to them, you know, this is why we come to work. This is what we believe in. This is our why. So it's about giving organizations their why. It's about communicating that clearly. And it's about making people believe that they are very much responsible for the, the, the fate or the fortune of their organization. That's a brilliant example. Brilliant example, Mike, because I know that many people, particularly the, those that I network, they're in the fitness space. A lot of them have left the corporate industry because they felt like they were a cog in a wheel, but they didn't know what the wheel was turning to go towards. Yes, I've, absolutely. I've spoken to a couple of people on the podcast who worked in accountancy and they worked in the audit department and they felt that they couldn't see what the output of what they were doing would be beyond some figures on a balance sheet for an external company they were helping. Whereas when they moved into the fitness space, they saw that they were helping people transform their bodies, transform their Absolutely. lives. And straight away, they had that P word that yeah. you used earlier, purpose. They felt that they Absolutely. had value. Yeah. But, there'll be plenty Absolutely. Of, but there'll be plenty of people, Mike, that work in the accountancy space that have had that buy-in from the Welsh foreman with the arm around the shoulder explaining what it is that you do, what your value is, how you can help us, reminding them of like what you are going to work to do and achieve. But a lot yeah. of that comes down to communication, which is uh, something that we keep coming yes. back to in this discussion, and that's huge, isn't it? Yeah. But there is something about Scotland as well that we're not, we're, we don't like tall poppies. You know, we're still, we're still quite a shy, modest, keep yourself, you know, out of the limelight kind of race. And, you know, I've, I've sometimes before I've spoken at a big event, you talk to people. I always try and talk to people. And I met this... Last year, it was a large organisation. I said, what's your job? She says, I'm just an admin. And I said, that means you're the engine oil of the organisation. She said, well, I never thought of myself like that. I said, do you mind if I speak to you during the, the conference? What's your name? She said, my name's Sarah. So I'm speaking at this large conference. I said, so, Sarah, where are, where are you, Sarah? She went, says, what's your job? She says, I'm the engine oil of this organisation. Right. And uh, this is what we have. People have got their little job. Um, they've got departments. Um, departments tend not to talk to each other. They tend to bid for budgets, which is daft because, I mean, I always think that, you know, we run organizations on the basis of spreadsheets. And, you know, if you think about it, how does a tennis player win a match by focusing on the scoreboard? They don't, so they're not seeing opportunities. And by the time, you know, that you see the latest spreadsheet, it's at the end of the month, for example. Some it's three months, some it's six months. And we should be far sharper. The people that can help us to identify opportunities are the people that work at every level. The people who are seeing the customers, understanding the customers, should be feeding back all the time. You know, you cannot disconnect, you know, people from finance to, for example, you know, um, an organization that's providing homes for people because their job is not to balance the books. Their job is to, you know, help to create, you know, brilliant homes for people and give them security and, you know, a quality of life. Does that make sense? It makes so, so much sense. Yeah. So we have people that say, I'm an accountant. You say, well, 
Well, I'll tell you the story, right? It's very brief. Um, I was at a business network meeting a few years ago and uh, oh, you know what it's like, you go around this table and, and people say, um, <clears throat> I'm, a, I'm a banker, sorry. This is what happened, you know, after the banking crisis, people would apologize for being a banker. Yeah. And then this guy said, I sell insurance and I wanted to escape because I don't want to be sold insurance. And I said to him afterwards, why don't you say to people something like, I help people sleep at night? And he said, hmm, that's an interesting idea. So I explained, you know, how that, that would start a conversation. And uh, he said, I'll try that. Yeah, yeah, I'll try that next time. So I met him months ago, months later, and he said, you know, that piece of advice you gave me, it's amazing. He says... I now sit around people say, so what, what's your job? Uh, he says, I help people sleep at night. And of course, people say, do you deal in rep? No. Do you hit them over the head with a baseball bat? Are you an anaesthetist? He says, no. I help people find um, the insurance that helps them to sleep at night um, to make sure their family are safe and their business is safe. Ah, what a difference. Did you see what I mean? how communication can be tailored in a way that captivates people and starts a conversation rather than sends them scurrying to the toilet. Undoubtedly. And that's the, that's the narrative that then shapes people's impression of that person. Whereas if he leaves, Absolutely. I sell insurance, people are like, oh God, he's going to try and sell me something. Whereas yes, exactly. Yes. Instead. Don't give people your job title, tell them why you do it. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, I'm a deputy, um, you know, data analyst. You know, please tell me why you do it, you know, um, and it's so fundamental because you, you know, you, you, you have to understand why a person goes to work and the impact they want to make and they do make, you know, otherwise it's just a job title and that mm -hmm. says nothing. It's got no intrinsic value, the job yeah, title. You've it's got. so hard to value the to kind of get the intrinsic value as you say i saw again another one of your linkedin posts i'm really going to be plugging your linkedin here mike because i've been loving some of the posts that have been popping up in my feed but four in ten people in the uk intend to leave their jobs and we really are one of the more troubled nations when it comes to that and a lot of that comes from from purpose we've spoken there about how companies can get some further buy-in but what are the other steps that regularly happen within organizations that you'll say to them what happens if we would do this or this? Your people would be more engaged, they'd be more willing. What are some of the other things you would do? Well, I mean, I think that the, the first thing is to keep people informed. You know, how are we doing? What are we doing? Why are we doing it? The second thing is to have regular sessions where you're asking them for their ideas and to make sure that their ideas are hard. Because if you don't, if you don't get hard, you will never come up with an idea. You will just accept that you are just there to deliver uh, on something. So you've got no real connect with the, the bigger purpose of the company. I think the other thing, and, and you know, maybe we're getting to the stage now where you know, people are beginning to ask, and this is a real, um, you know, do I believe in what the company is doing? You know? Um, all these say all these things on the corporate social responsibility. You know, it's a line on the website, but I don't see any of that. 
And the, the other one, I think, is, you know, why are we working so hard for the CEO and the shareholders to get richer and nothing happens in our pockets ever? So I think that, the, that, that people have to be seen as stakeholders in the company, in the organisation. Um, they have to um, share the purpose and feel enthused by it. And when people are enthused at work, it's, it's, it's massive. But they also, you need good leadership. You know, leadership is not about being a boss. Leadership is about wherever you are. It's about seeing a way to do things differently, empowering people around you to come up with ideas and make things happen. And I suppose, finally, uh, it's just about, you know, the culture. Because if you walk into an office and your spirits sink, you know, on the carpet as soon as you walk in, um, then you've got a culture of, the, of negativity. You know, when you, see, when you see people standing outside smoking and the, the boss walks past and they all go suddenly silent, we know what that means, don't we? That people will engage in complaint because they've never been asked to contribute their ideas. So ideas then become what they're doing is rubbish. Oh, if I, if I could do that, if I had this job, I would do this. But everyone should be asked that every day. And, you know, you want to take your personality to work, not leave it at the coat hook. I've worked with people who were, you know, serious and kept themselves themselves during the day, kept their head down. And then in the pub at night, they're comedians. Why aren't the comedians in the workplace? Probably because they think, hmm, I don't want to. I don't want to risk you know, anyone seeing me here. And that's terrible. So there's a lot we need to do. Um, but the, the, the most important thing is people feel that they're part of the organization and they, they believe in its purpose. And if you say something publicly to your customers, live up to it. Don't have a corporate social responsibility policy and then do all kinds of unethical things internally and externally. Of course, we can have the, all the fluffy PR we like, but people who work on yeah. the ground will, will understand how it actually They get works. more and more cynical, don't they? I mean, you know, and you don't want your people to be cynical. You don't want it to, to, to think that um, they're contributing to something they don't believe in. It's just nonsense because your energy drops. One of, the last, one of the last areas I was keen to ask you about, Mike, was... During these times where we've got social distancing, we've got masks, we've got people being more reserved than ever before, what is your five-a-day habit that fuels you and it's nothing to do with nutrition or fruit? Right, well, I'm glad of that. Um, it, uh, I go out for walks and I speak to strangers every day. Every day I speak to strangers and I engage them in conversation. So that's, that's the... the, the I do five strangers a day, every single day, even during lockdown, even if I'm standing two metres away, because people do want to feel recognised and noticed. And then when you hear people, you're getting a pretty up-to-date sense of what people are believing and what they're thinking just now. And I tell you, it's quite scary. You know, people are, are confused. They're, they're, they're feeling despondent they're feeling you know pessimistic about the future 
And that's very worrying. And that tells you something about the landscape that we live in just now and how we've got to change that narrative. The other thing I do is I leap out of bed. I don't, I don't, I'm not one of these people, I live alone, obviously. I live alone because I don't like this crawling out of bed, this turning over, this reluctance. I leap out of bed. I make myself a coffee and I sing a song every morning. And you could only do that if you live alone, let's be honest. Um, the other thing is I, I, I do buy fresh ingredients and feed myself. I cook. And I think it's really important because if you cook and you make your own stuff, you just feel closer to, to nature. And actually, you know that food, you know, food is something that's real. It's grown, it's, it's, it's caught. Um, and that's really important to me. Um, the, the other thing is to watch, you know, I read. I read a lot. I read a lot of fiction. We can get so fixated on self-help, learning about business, all of that. Most of these books are not very well written, by the way. They tend to be very formulaic. Um, so I like reading fiction and I, I like it because you're kind of, someone said when you read fiction, you live a thousand lives. And I think that's probably true because you learn so much from fiction. There's this kind of idea that fiction's there, but I've got to learn, 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 and I have to go and find things out. Well, I do that as well. Every day I do research about what's going on around the world and I try and find those golden nuggets. So those are my five. There's so many things there, Mike, that I love to go into a couple of those. The fact that you combine your walking with connection is very interesting because I recently had a longevity expert in the podcast who helps with brain health and generally living longer and better. Yeah. And two of the things she called out were social connection in terms of time away from the seriousness of business and work. Absolutely. Absolutely. The ability to have a bit of nonsense, a bit of a laugh, informal conversations. But also yeah. we need to move because we live such sedentary lifestyles nowadays, sat yeah. at the computer, sat in work, driving to the driving to the um to, to the shops rather than walking, sitting on the train to work, all these kind of things. So the fact that you combine both of those probably contribute to the the energy that you bring throughout the rest of your day and the rest of your life as well and talking to strangers and having these conversations is such a charge i i go a morning walk as well before i walk on for work and i find yeah, myself yeah. much sharper in conversation with colleagues and customers because i've spoken to the the same five or six dog walkers who i see every morning on the route that i go and i feel i feel sharp and ready and conversationally astute to jump on a podcast with somebody like yourself or to jump on a, a, a meeting and work. Absolutely. Practiced, a practice. Sure. Yeah, yeah. It is practice. You know, uh, engagement with people is, is, is a practice for life. I mean, it's, it's, it's in a sense, it's everything because what we tend to do is become part of a tribe where we all believe in the same thing. You know what I mean? So no one will say something that, that, is going to jar with people. But when you're out and about, you, you find some extraordinary opinions. I remember arriving in Preston, or a place near Preston, and it was the night of the, the Brexit becoming a reality, you know, that midnight thing. And I arrived at this place, and it was a very large um, sports centre, but it had accommodation. And the guy at the door said, are you come to speak at the Brexit party? And I said, no, I certainly am not. But I, I went and spoke. It was another 
event. But then I came out and I was speaking to these people who were celebrating with their Union Jacks and everything. And I was asking them why they voted Brexit rather than berating them. Because I don't believe in Brexit. I think it was a terrible move. But, you know, there's no point in saying, you know, people who vote Brexit are stupid. I went and I spoke to people and I listened to why and I tried to understand. And they believed the narratives that I rejected. But the point is that they didn't do it out of evil. They did it because they saw something in it for themselves or they'd been led to believe that. So, you know, you when you listen to people, people that you would normally talk to, you learn. And I think that's the most important thing. And your mind is kind of stimulated. Uh, and you're able to use your persuasive techniques as well. You know? Undoubtedly. We talk a lot about echo chambers when it comes to politics as well. So potentially, if you never spoke to somebody that would consider voting or voted Brexit before, you just assume that the media narrative of racism or bigotry or whatever is, sits there. But equally, if they speak to somebody that was against Brexit, they they then have to move away from the narrative that maybe they're all social justice Absolutely. warriors who don't understand immigration or whatever else yeah, yeah. the, the argument be on either side. So yeah. your ability to engage with these people gives greater understanding, which brings us closer as a, as a nation, because at the moment we are very fractured, both Scotland and the UK, when it comes yeah, to absolutely. politics, we've got an awful lot of dividing lines. The other area that you spoke about that I'd, I'd want to go into a little bit more is around the fact that you read a lot of fiction. A lot of type A personalities like myself and like the listeners, we almost collate and collect self-development books. We're taking notes on them, we're trying to action them. But there is magic within the pages of a fiction book which can actually improve your ability to communicate and improve in your career beyond maybe one of these self-help books, which, as you say, some of them are very formulaic. It's basically a blog post spread out with 200 different examples across the, the, the yes. 300 pages. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm not dissing. I think the, probably the best book ever written was How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. It's still, to me, the best self-help book of all. Um, and I wish I'd written it. I think it's, it's, it's the only book that's had more reprints in the Bible. Yeah. Um, so that's extraordinary. But, you know, there is something about fiction because you're transported into different countries, into different lifestyles, into different personalities, into different scenarios. And it is enormously educational. It's enormously informative and it's stimulating. And, you know, it's, it, it also brings in um, facts things that you didn't you would never find in because you know all great writers do a lot of research so they bring in these little facts and you know things that you've never worked words that you've never thought of uh concepts so um it is important and people enjoy watching netflix because they're stories they're stories and people love stories i tell stories so i do advise people to read fiction because it transports you, it takes you out of yourself. It takes you to a different place. You know, I, I remember reading The Magus by John Fowlis. And uh, as soon as I'd finished reading it, because it was set in a Greek island, it's a brilliant book. I went and booked a holiday on a Greek island, you know, because that's how evocative. We know that with films, even more so with books, because you can begin to, you know, imagine, your, you can begin to feel yourself in this situation. And that's incredibly good for your imagination. Yeah. And we need to stretch our imagination and exercise it all the time. 
Undoubtedly. And I'm very firmly in the camp there where books can allow you to do that more so than just um, television and Netflix because you can, the the words are the input, but then your imagination runs wild and you remain a bit sharper. We all picture the personality, the, the, the characters, sometimes they're described, um, sometimes they're not. That's why when you read a book and you see the film, you think, no, not him. <laughs> you know, it's disappointing because we do, we use our imagination and our imagination has to be constantly tapped into. It's going to be, it's like a muscle. It's going to be exercised, you know, and that's why I read fiction all the time. And it also means you look forward to going to bed. I read in bed. That's true. And, and, then, again, and then you're up early yeah. in the morning, Mike, out your walk. Absolutely. Yeah. Brilliant. Yes. I, I have absolutely loved that conversation. And I've learned a lot about your background, some of which I knew already from one of your, one of your talks and doing some research on you. But I'm sure the listeners have found that equally interesting as well. If they want to continue the conversation with you, Mike, where should they head towards? Well, but look, I've got... Um, MikeStevenson.net up behind me. I'd love people to go on to my speaker site, MikeStevenson.net, which tells a bit more about my story. And um, and I think, you know, it talks about some of the issues that I'm really passionate about. Most of all, it promotes um, a speech that I want to give in every single part of the UK and beyond, which is the best is yet to come because I believe that. I think we're looking forward, if we get things right, we're looking forward to the most exciting period in human history. We've got to get it right. And people have all got to buy into that and do the things that we need to do to make sure we go that way. Amazing, Mike. That'll be linked in the show notes below. Thank you all again, once again, for listening. If you have enjoyed this one, take a screenshot, pop it on your Instagram story, tag me at call.cambro, and I'll be back to speak to you all again very, very soon.